And that triggers a whole crisis for Patch Adams. I mean, he's struggling with philosophical and theological issues. And you see him in one point in the movie, he finds himself looking down from a cliff. If you've seen the movie, he's contemplating committing suicide. And he has this very poignant uh, soliloquy addressed to God. And it's illustrative, I think, of many of the experiences of those people who go through tremendous suffering. And he says it this way. So answer me, please. He's talking to God. Tell me what you were doing. You created man, and man suffers enormous amount of pain, and then man dies. Maybe you should have had a few more brainstorming sessions prior to creation. You rested on the seventh day. Maybe you should have spent that day working on compassion. Now, you can understand he's hurting, right? And so he's expressing this angst in his soul. And in his response, Patch reflects a common conclusion to those who suffer and who are horrified by the needs of our world. There's a lot of people, I've talked to them, they, they have a hard time reconciling a just and good God with a world full of pain, evil, and suffering. And we see that, right? And maybe some of you struggle with that. And I think we have two choices in dealing with suffering. We have two choices when we experience tragedy and crisis in our life. You know, we either get angry and blame God for what's happening in our lives, or the other op option is we trust God. Or a third option, which is the one Patch decided, he, you know, in that movie scene, he finally goes, oh, you're not worth it anyways, and turns and walks away. In other words, rejecting God. And so a lot of people choose the third option. They've been hurt, they've been disappointed, they've been disillusioned by some experience in life, and so they just write God out of the equation. And so I, I'm really convinced that God gets a lot of blame. How many think that's true? And he probably gets a lot of blame that he's not rightfully deserving of that blame. That can be true. Because I think we all have a habit in our lives when things aren't going our way to, you know, look outside of ourselves and find out who the culprit is, right? We got to pin the blame on somebody. And so, you know, we can look around and we can blame, you know, our spouse or we can blame our kids or we can blame a teacher, we can blame a parent, Right? We can go on and blame somebody that's harmed us or, you know, afflicted us in some measure. We can just kind of focus that way. You know, or sometimes when things happen, they seem so unjust and unfair, we have a tendency just to blame God. Why did God let this happen anyways? And why am I suffering through this experience? And so often, God gets blamed for what's going on in our world. I've been reading a book by Ravi Zachariah called The End of Reason. It's kind of a response to a book that was written by an atheist, Sam Harris. And you know he's trying to negate the idea that God ever existed. And so he's writing this response, and he's talking about the issue of suffering. Suffering seems to be the big issue that most people who are struggling with God bring up. And, uh, okay, he says, talk about suffering. We must talk about human autonomy versus God's story of why we are the way we are. In other words, Ravi is basically bringing out the idea, you know, we need to remember one thing, that when God made us, he gave us a will. And when we have a will, we make choices. And when we make choices, there are consequences to those choices. He says, though the sacred is offered to us, um, the will is arrogant and refuses to submit to God's authority. The story of suffering cannot be told without the story of human pride and of our need for God to change our hearts. In other words, 
you know, before we get upset with God, I think we got to look within ourselves about what we are actually doing on the inside. And then he goes on to say, can we demand that God create in us the ability to love without giving us the option to reject the love? In other words, one of the reasons why God created autonomy in human beings, why God gave us a will was so that you and I would have the opportunity to love God, to respond to God. I mean, if you and I don't have a will, we don't have a choice. We have to either love God or we don't love God. But when we have a will, we have a choice. And love, folks, is a choice. We make a choice to love people. Do you realize that? And so we make a choice to love God. And then it goes on to say, uh, also, the desire to be trusted or to trust and be trusted without the freedom to doubt. The privilege of making a choice without the responsibilities of accepting the ramifications of that choice. And what he's basically saying is that when God gave, gave us this great privilege of making choices, there was also a responsibility that came with it. You know, a lot of times I'll talk to teenagers. How I many know every teenager wants privilege? You know, isn't that true? But you know what I try to say to them, with every privilege comes a corresponding responsibility. And it's true in all of our lives. When you and I are given privileges, the greater the privileges we have, the greater the responsibility that's come with the privilege. And so often people who are highly privileged abuse their responsibilities. Isn't that true? We see that all the time. We even see world-class leaders who have great privilege, but what are they doing? Abusing responsibility. You know, they're not taking the responsibility on. They're abusing their privileges and not assuming responsibility. We have a tendency to do that. And that's not just true of teenagers. That's true of adults. We do that. And so what we need to understand here is God gave us this beautiful opportunity and gave us great privilege for us to love and to be loved and to learn how to trust and develop in these areas in our lives. So... Last week, uh, well, let me just go back and say this, that every choice we make has consequences. And we can make good choices and it bears fruit, but sometimes we make poor choices and it breeds evil. It creates evil. It creates negativity. It creates negative consequences in our lives. And what we tend to do with that is we blame somebody else for what we did. It's a lot easier to blame other people. It's a lot easier to blame God than to say, hey, you know, maybe I made a wrong choice. Just possibly I am not taking responsibility for what I've done. I'm not saying everything that's bad that happens to us is because we made a bad choice. Don't interpret it that way. I'm just suggesting that some of the choices we've made have had negative consequences in our lives. And we can all see that. And all of us could say, that's so true. Now, last week, we looked at a very interesting character found in the book of Job. He's introduced in the 35th chapter, or 32nd chapter. And we look at this young man who has been uh, overhearing a conversation between Job and his three friends. You know, we get a picture now that probably a group of people listening to this conversation. Elihu jumps in on the scene. He's a lot younger. He's trying to be respectful. And he's been listening to this discussion about what's been happening with Job. Now, for some of you that may not know the premise of the book of Job, let me just go back and give you a little brief update so you can kind of come to speed with where the rest of us are at, okay? And here goes. Basically, Job was this wonderful man who feared God. He, he, he was blameless according to God. God said that about him. He avoided evil, okay? And uh, he's in the heavenly courts, and Satan comes along, and God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's a blameless man. You know, he fears me, and he avoids evil. There's nobody else like him. And, you know, Satan said, well, you know, it's, good, it's easy to be good when you've been so good to him. I mean, look how rich he is. Look how much favor he has with people. I mean, he's, he's just blessed everywhere. You've kind of protected his life. He's lived a good life. The reason why Job is serving you is because of all the benefits. 
And God goes, well, no, I don't think that's true. And so Satan says, well, let's put him to a test, and you'll find out that he's only serving you for what he gets out of it. And so we have this opening scene in chapters 2 and 3 where Job all of a sudden runs into huge tragedy and misfortune. His children are killed in a tragedy. He loses all of his wealth. You know, he's lost his dignity. His wife is angry with him. She's frustrated. She's hurt. and She's telling him to curse God and die. Job's trying to maintain some sort of integrity in all this. His health breaks down. He's just a total mess. And he's destitute. And this is his condition. And his friends come along and they have a certain understanding as to the nature of God. And here it goes. It's, you know, I've brought this up in other weeks, but I want to keep reminding us because I believe that this thinking is actually far deeper inside of us than we actually realize. And it kind of goes something like this, that um, you know, if we do the right things, God's going to bless us. And if we do the wrong things, God's going to punish us. And that's one of the great motivating principles that a lot of people live under. But unfortunately, though that is true in some regards, I'm not saying that's not true, it's not always true. It doesn't always work out that way. You don't always get what you deserve in this life. And that's part of the reality. And I think most of us will understand it. And that's why some other books of the Bible teach us that. Matter of fact, the book of Ecclesiastes says, you know, it's really unfortunate when the righteous person gets what the wicked deserve and the wicked person gets what the righteous deserve. That's really unfortunate. But that does happen. That's part of reality. And Job even points that out when he's making one of his speeches. Now, one of the things that Elihu takes exception to in his speech is simply this. You know, he's a little upset with Job. He's actually angry about it. I talked about how to, how to be angry not to sin. But he, he basically is angry with Job because Job, in defending his innocence, he's condemning God. Because in Job's mind, back to this retribution theology, the only reason I'm suffering is because I've sinned. But Job goes, hey, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. Why am I being, going through this stuff? And so he feels like God is being unfair to him. And so what he's saying is that, you know, I'm innocent, therefore God's not fair. And Elihu is upset with that. He's going, you've misunderstood God. Now he's also upset with Job's three friends because they have said, you know, they've condemned Job, but they haven't really showed Job what the error of his way is. So he's upset with them because they've done a poor job of kind of, you know, in his mind, defending God. So he begins to defend God. But one of his problems is this. He overdoes it. You know, how many know that truth taken to an extreme is usually becomes a new error. You know, it's a new, it's a new falsehood. And he says this in Job chapter 35. If you sin, does that affect him? He's speaking about God now. How does our sin affect God? If your sins are many, what does that do to him? If you're righteous, what do you give to him and what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness only affects humans like yourself and your righteousness only other people. In other words, what Elihu is saying is, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do. It doesn't really impact God at all. Yet may influence and impact other people's lives, but God's unaffected by if we do the right thing or the wrong thing. Now, in one sense, God isn't affected by what we're doing, but God chooses to initiate relationship with us and as a father, he is affected because he grieves over things and he's feeling what things are happening in our world. And I like what Dr. Longman uh, says. God rejoices over those who fear him. He rejoices in his humble people. God rejoices in innocent people and faithful people and in those people who pray. So God has a vested interest in what we're doing. As a matter of fact, the beginning of the book kind of brings that out. God was paying attention to what Job was doing. He, was, he had some sort of emotional investment in Job's life. 
He goes on to say about, Dr. Laman goes on to say that what, what Elihu is doing is focusing in on the transcendency of God, which means how, the, how God is beyond us, but he's losing the sight of God's eminence, which is God's nearness to humanity and his concern for us. And so he says, Elihu, uh, Elihu represents those who wrongly affirm the self-sufficiency of God to the detriment of God's desire for relationship with his human creatures. He wrongly states that God is beyond the notice of sin, righteousness, pain, and suffering. Now, I want to just say to you right now, God's not beyond that. He notices everything. He's noticing, as a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that he suffers with us, so he's not indifferent to our situation. Indeed, the prologue, which is the beginning of the book, reveals quite the contrary. God cares deeply that Job responds with faith, and he desires that Job loves him, not due to simply the fact that God rewards him. See, the whole point is, what God wants from us is our love, not because of the way he's blessed us, but just because of who he is. How many really appreciate to be loved and accepted and affirmed for who you are, not for what you do? Isn't that great? We all want to have that. And you know, that comes from the heart of God. We're wired the same way God is in many ways. We want to be loved and affirmed and accepted for who we are. And God does too. And you know, that's why I say, you know, I have a vision of worship service. You know, sometimes we come into worship service, you know, and we've had an amazing week and God's just blessed us. And so we're, we're coming to church. We're ready to shout, you know, oh God, you're so good. You know, have you ever had those moments where God's really done something big and you're just kind of dancing around the house? Does anybody get that excited about what God does? Are you, are you like me? I, I kind of get excited once in a while. You know, I can jump and, you know, scream and go, yes! You know, this is so awesome, God. But, you know, God wants us to do that even when things aren't working out. We should be praising him at all times. Isn't that true? Yeah, because you know what, God, it's not just for the good things you do, but just for who you are. You are so worthy of our adoration and praise. Oh, by the way, if you learn to live like that, you're going to be a lot happier. I can guarantee you, you'll be a lot happier, you know, understanding that element in your life. Happy, you know, the thankful people are the happy people. I've discovered that. John Walton states this compelling idea behind the book of Job is that God does care and he wants us to learn to trust him. He says it this way, in light of the book of Job, the only acceptable elaboration would be, I am God, I care deeply, and I want you to trust me even when you don't understand. You could summarize the book that way. Isn't that great? So let's put that in our cylinders. We gotta put that in our mind. God's saying, I really do care and I care about what you're doing, and I am doing some things, and even when suffering comes into your life, I think there's other reasons for suffering besides, you know, I've done the wrong thing. You see, I'm reading a book right now by N.T. Wright. It's called After You Believe, and he's talking about what goes on between the day I become a Christian and when I go into eternity. How many know that can be a big stretch of time? And it's like a lot of Christians, you know, they're kind of on a holding pattern. Oh, I'm, I'm a trusting Christ, and I'm just waiting for the day I step in eternity. But you know what God is doing during that time is developing character. And how many know that character is only fashion when you and I go through some challenging experiences? That's what develops something inside of our soul. It's called character, and God's interested in that, isn't it? And he's also interested in us getting a right understanding as who's, who he is. How many know we rarely change our viewpoints in life until our experiences don't match our understanding of who God is? 
And then our understanding of God starts to change because crisis is forcing us. You know, our grid doesn't fit anymore. So now we have to, you know, find a level of what we'd call coherency. We gotta say, hey, my experience is not matching up to what I know about God, so something's wrong here. Either my understanding of God is wrong, you know, or my understanding of my experience is wrong. I've gotta figure this out, you know, I gotta understand what's going on here. And we all move towards that in our lives. Now, as we turn to the final chapters of the book of Job, Job gets an unusual answer for his desire for God to show up. If you remember in chapter 31, Job is kind of demanded that God would show up. It's kind of like a court scene. He wants to put God in the witness stand. He's got a whole bunch of questions for God. And have, how many have ever felt like, you know, when I get to heaven, I got some questions for God. You know, I've got, I want to put him in the witness chair. I want to know why he did this, you know. And Job felt that way about his circumstance. He says, God, I really want to understand what's going on here. You know, I really think you've been unfair to me, and I want to put you on the stand. And so I got to have you show up. And so God now is showing up. But it's not turning out exactly the way Job had in mind. You know, Job kind of had a picture. How many have ever had this picture in your mind? You have an expectation of what's going to happen, and it doesn't happen that way. And we're a little bit disappointed. And I'm sure Job was a little disappointed. Because now, God shows up in a storm, and Job is put on the witness stand. You know, God's response to Job is simply, who's in charge here, Job? Who is man to question God? Do we have the wherewithal and wisdom to suggest that we could do better if we were in God's place? And I think Hollywood did a movie called Bruce Almighty and this person becomes God for a little while. How many know that'd be a scary thought? You know, I don't know about you. I like you guys, but I wouldn't want you in charge of the universe. And you wouldn't want me in charge of the universe. That's way too much responsibility. Can you say amen to that? It would be challenging, wouldn't it? Now, God asked Job 71 questions in these chapters. He's under cross-examination. Aren't you glad I'm only going to look at two? Oh, we're going to leave here finally tonight. In Job chapter 38, he finally gets what he desires, as Dr. Longman points out, an audience with God. However, it does not go the way he anticipated. Instead, Job, instead of confronting God, God is confronting Job. Job is now put in the witness stand. Job, I've got a few questions for you. And so Job is sitting there in the witness stand, and Warren Worsby writes, the whole purpose of this interrogation was to make Job realize his own inadequacy and inability to meet God as an equal and defend his cause. Folks, we're not on the same playing field as God. That's what we're going to discover in these four chapters. So what is it that God is challenging us? Because by the way, I believe the two big questions that Job frames are the questions that you and I are always posing to God. And Job is posing it to God, and God has a little question towards us. And the first one goes something like this. Is the right to contend with God. Who are we to question God? You see, we live in a culture today that, you know, we're always questioning things. And we, we have rights, you know, and we question everything. We, we question the mayor, how she runs the city. We can question the pre, premier, how he's going to run the province. We can question the prime minister. You know, we can tell him how to run the country. How many know that we have good ideas? And we may have a few good ideas, by the way. I'm not negating that. But a lot of times, the situations that they find themselves in is far more complex than you and I understand. And so you and I are seeing it from one vantage point, And they're getting bombarded from a whole bunch of vantage points. And they got to make some tough decisions. 
It's not always an easy situation. You go, oh, it's real simple. Why don't they just do this? You know, it would be like, you know, trying to, you know, be God for a day. You know, you got one person praying for rain, the other person's praying for sun, you know? One's praying for rain because you know they're gonna not have crops, and the other one's praying for sun because there's something very significant that's gonna happen that day, and you gotta make these calls. And God is making decisions all the time what he's gonna do. You know, and we have our agenda, and God has his purposes that are over top of our agenda. We need to understand that. Um, So, In Job chapter 38, we pick it up in verse one. And then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. In other words, God came in lightning and thunder. Now, I don't know about you, if God shows up in one of these major prairie storms, lightning and thunder, how many know they can be a little bit scary? How many have ever experienced some real intensity, one of these storms, and you kind of go, I don't know. I mean, Job was a little intimidated by God arriving on the scene. God is not happy with Job. He goes on to say, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? In other words, who's the purpose, that person that's attributing what I'm doing as being evil or unfair? He doesn't even know what he's talking about. Who is this person? Job's looking there and he's thinking, I'm that guy. You know, guilty as charged, right? He says, now buck up, buddy. Brace yourself. Man up. You know, brace yourself like a man. I'm going to question you, and you're going to answer to me. And we know from the first two chapters that Job now is a blameless man, but here God is addressing Job's flawed understanding as to God's nature and how God is working. Because obviously, Job doesn't know God as good as he thinks he does. Job has some misunderstandings as to who God really is. Job misunderstands what God is really doing in God's world, and Job has misunderstood his situation, and he's blaming God for the bad stuff that's happening in his life. We never do that, of course. Now, I think sometimes we become obsessive in our service to God because we're afraid that God won't bless us, you know? I I think this is important. Motivation is really important because... I've seen people who, who are kind of, kind of have a slavish fear towards God. It's not the, the healthy fear of God. It's the slavish fear that, boy, I'm really afraid if I don't do everything I'm supposed to do, God's going to get me. Or he's not going to bless me. And so we're kind of motivated to do certain things, I think, out of the wrong heart attitude. You know, I think we should be serving God with the idea he's my loving father and I just love doing things for him and I'm doing this out of gratitude and I have no expectations. If he wants to say, good job, son, that's awesome. I'm gonna do it anyways. But you know what happens with us? When we have an expectation that God's supposed to do something for us and we're doing things and we don't get that, guess what happens? We're a little disappointed with God. Isn't that the truth? And that shows the problem is not on God's side. That shows the problem is on our side. We're not serving with the right understanding, with the right motivation. It kind of reveals itself to us. Um, The idea is reflected in God's assessment that Job's understanding of God is wrong. He's attributing to God something that is not only untrue, but is actually evil. In essence, he's darkening God's counsel. He's attributing God to sinister, evil thoughts towards Job. John Walton says it this way, Yahweh, that's the name for God, his personal name, use of this word, not world, that's a typo, characterizes Job as considering God's plan or counsel to be dark, that is, sinister, devious, or even evil. It is no surprise that Job would be confused because he lacked knowledge. Everybody knows that, you know, there's times when we just don't know what's going on. So God's not gonna, God's not gonna discipline or correct us when we just don't know. But Job goes a step further. 
What's unacceptable to God is that Job speaks as if he has knowledge. That's what gets him into trouble. He goes, I know what God is doing. No, you don't, Job. And you know, a lot of times we do that. I know what God is doing. And you know, we're really good at telling other believers what God is doing. And sometimes we're telling people true things, what God is like and how he works, but it doesn't apply to that situation. And that's actually even more damaging. Because we're saying the truth, but we're putting it in the wrong application. How many know that that can be very devastating to a person who's hearing the truth, but it doesn't apply to their situation? It takes a lot of wisdom to speak into a situation the truth with the right application to the truth. Does everybody follow what I'm saying? You know, you can be telling people true things, but it doesn't apply in that situation. You know, you can say to people, you know, you, you know like his friends said, you know, Job, how many know that wicked people suffer because of their sin? That's a true statement. But they went on and attributed, well, the reason you're suffering, Job, is because you sinned. Now they're attributing a motive to Job that's not true. Job didn't sin. And so they're saying something that's true. Wicked people suffer. Therefore, in their minds, Job is suffering because he's wicked. Well, Job is suffering for a totally different reason. Nobody understands it. Neither Job, nor his friends, nor Elihu. Nobody but God and Satan understands why Job is suffering true? So I think we got to be careful sometimes when we're trying to help people out that we don't do more damage than good. And that brings us up to probably one of the most important things is that we have to be careful that when we become teachers, we know what we're saying. Very important. As a matter of fact, James says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Do you know it's such a major responsibility if you're a teacher to say the truth, because if you're not saying the truth, you can do a lot of damage to people. You know, pastors have an amazing authority. I know that. I'm a pastor, I have amazing influence. Boy, it is a scary thing. I'm gonna have to stand before God one day and give an account to what I've been sharing with you guys. Because some of you are going, well, if the pastor said, it's gotta be true. And you know, there's a lot of pastors out there, and they're not all saying the right stuff. As a matter of fact, you're going to hear conflicting theology sometimes. You're going, who's right in this thing? And that's why you and I have a responsibility when we're hearing a sermon. You have to go back into the Word and go, are these things really the way they are? Aren't we responsible? Isn't that what Paul said about the Bereans? They were more noble than those of Thessalonica because they diligently inquired to see if those things were so. They wanted to make sure that what Paul was saying was correct. It was biblical. It was scriptural. Very, very important. But in our part, we have to be very careful. As a matter of fact, it says we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect. Able to keep their whole body in check. How many can honestly say, you've probably slipped up a few times with what you've said? I got my hand up. I have said things, you know, and sometimes we don't even intend to offend somebody. You know, it's an easy thing to offend people. It's an easy thing, you know, to discourage people. You can say the wrong word at the wrong time and instead of producing encouragement, it produces discouragement in somebody. How many have heard a word and all of a sudden you walked away and you're going, boy, I was really discouraged by that. I was really demotivated by that. You know, it's so easy to say something, you know, to people that really brings about hardship and heartache in their lives just because of something we've said. And we've, I think we've all hurt people because of words that we've said. I think it takes amazing wisdom and grace and self-control to speak the truth in love. As a matter of fact, you know, my daughter and I were chatting yesterday. She goes, Dad, she, go, you know, she goes, well, I have a granddaughter. And she's a little chatterbox. She is so delightful, but she's, the moment she gets up in the morning, she chatters all the time until she goes to bed. I've never met anybody like her. I mean, she is chattering the whole time. She's very delightful. 
But I thought, you know, where did she get that from? And then I could remember back when I was a young person, I was a little chatterbox. I could talk, but I've noticed something as I've gotten older. I've gotten quieter and quieter and quieter. And my daughter said to me last night, my youngest daughter who lives at home, she said, Dad, you're an introvert. I'm going, no, I'm not. But I keep praying this prayer. Lord, set a guard upon my lips that I might not sin against you. So, you know, eventually that kind of diminishes what you're saying at times. Because how many know Proverbs says, in the multitude of words, there's no lack of sin. And so I, have to, I realize I cannot afford to be a chatterbox. I'm bound to get into trouble. I'm bound to say something stupid, right? You know, that just makes sense. So I think we've all learned that. Now, let's move on to our text here. This is really God's world. Job is asked, where was he when God created the world? I like this. God has not only designed the world in a certain way, but God sustains the world he designed. As we read the creation account, we've got to remind ourselves something about uh, the genre that we're actually in. How many know what genre? You know what genre is? It's kind of the writing that we're in here right now. What is this, this book of Job? What kind of writing is this? Does anybody know? This is not a trick question. You know, the prologue and the epilogue are narrative. Everything else in between is what? Poetry. Now, I want to say something. This is not, I'm not trying to get anybody upset, but this is not a science textbook. We have to understand what we're reading. And it's very important we understand this because I think Christians fight with each other because they don't understand the genre that they're reading. And how many know that poetry is read differently than a narrative? Anybody like poetry? How many here you really enjoy poetry? What is it about poetry you like? Let me give you some of the, the reading strategies of poetry. Number one, when you read poetry, you have to slow down. Right? Because poetry is concise, succinct thought, and a lot of it's metaphor, and a lot of it is designed to make you ponder and reflect and think, and a lot of it has meaning beyond what you're reading. How many know that's true about poetry? Anybody understand that? So you need to understand we're reading poetry here. How many think that might be important in how we interpret the text, that we're reading poetry? I think it's critical. So let's take a look at the poetry here. Look at chapter 38, verse 4. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Now, I'm going to jump down a whole bunch of verses. We're coming four chapters. But if we'd have kept reading the portion, it sounds like he's building a house. Now, I don't believe the earth looked like the building of a house. Okay? I think that's poetic license. I think he's basically describing how God was framing things. And he uses something that we can grasp, the framing of a house. Okay? Then look at verse 13. Excuse me, verse 12. Have you given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? In other words, God is the one who's determining how the day and the night work, how the seasons work. And he's basically saying to Job, where were you when I created all of this? I mean, do you know how this all works, Job? And I got a feeling like Job knows some things, but I have, he could probably say to God, I don't know exactly how it all works. I mean, how did God just kind of hang, you know, the earth in suspended air? You know, we, well, that's gravity, Pastor. No, yeah, but we've defined it as gravity. I mean, what really is it? You know, God has done something. He's the one that's moving the constellations and the stars, as we're going to see. Then it says, that he might take the earth by its edges and shake the wicked out of it. Now, how many can just see this? How many see God taking planet earth? He grabs it by the edge. He goes. <laughs> now, you know that's a ridiculous, pastor. That's not what he's meaning. That's figurative language. 
See, and sometimes we say, I believe everything in the Bible is literal. I don't believe that's literal. I think that's a figurative expression of speech. I think what God is saying is that he can handle all the wicked on the planet. Just like somebody comes out and says a carpet, wants to get the dust off, he grabs the edges of the carpet and starts flicking it to get rid of the dust, right? All of those dust particles and stuff start moving away from the carpet. God says, that's the way I can handle the wicked. I can just flick them out. Isn't that a beautiful image? He's painting a picture. Poetry does that. And he says, the wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. What does he mean by that, their upraised arm? Well, when you raise your arm like this, you're speaking of power. God says, I know how to take the powerful dictators of the world and I can break their arms. And do you know God over the course of history, if you studied, it is amazing. You have Nebuchadnezzar rises to power. You've got people like Napoleon and Hitler. These people are brutal. They're dictators. They got power and might and they're suppressing and oppressing people. But God goes, okay, I'm gonna use them for a season. I'm gonna use them to do this, this, and that. And then he says, now I'm taking them down. And these guys come down. So he says to Job, can you do that? That's pretty impressive, don't you think? I can't handle all the bullies of the world, but God says I can handle them. God uh, challenges Job's understanding of the created world. Look at verse 16. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? How many know that, you know, there's a place on planet Earth in the ocean you can actually go over a mile deep? You know, he's saying, Job, have you been down there walking lately? I doubt it, right? But I don't think he's really talking about that. I think this refers back to chapter 28 when Job says in this wisdom poem, he says, hey, where can you find wisdom? Even if you go to the deepest parts of the seas, you can't find wisdom there. Even if you go to the gates of hell or death, you can't find wisdom there. So he's alluding back to that in this portion of scripture. He says, of course, Job has not seen or understood any of these things. And yet Job is making a case for understanding the ways of God. Question mark? Hey, you don't even get the basics, Joe. How are you going to figure out my intricacies when I'm working inside of the human soul and working with people and all these issues of justice and retribution and all the rest of it, Joe? How are you going to figure that out? You can't even figure out the simpler stuff. I think that's the point God is making here with Job. God continues to question Job's understanding of how he creates the world and how it works. And I love this next verse. Look what it says in verse 25. Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm. Now, how many have ever driven up? It's kind of neat. You're driving up Highway 2, and you're looking, and all of a sudden you can see the rain. You know, you're not, it's not raining where you're driving, but you look up and you can see rain. And you can see the, the path of rain being cut, and it's dropping down to earth. How many, how many have seen that? Come on, you guys have all seen that, right? Who cuts that channel and decides where the rain is falling? I mean, here's a farmer saying, God, let it rain, and it drops on the neighbor's field, you know, and he gets nothing. I mean, who's determining which plots of land are getting hit? Interesting. I'm just raising these questions. To water a land, and then he says this. This is very fascinating. To water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert. To satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Now, why would God, why would God bring this up? Why is God talking about watering an uninhabited area? Because I believe he's speaking to Job's issue. And what is Job's issue? That God blesses those that do the right thing and God's going to discipline and curse those that are doing the wrong thing. Oh, but look what God does. He's just raining. He's wasting the rainwater, the blessing, on a place where there's nobody. So that says to you, it's got nothing to do with 
how good or bad they are over there because it's raining there. God's even blessing the nothing, you know? Think about that. And so I, I, I like what John Walton writes. He's assumed, he has presumed to set God, oh, sorry. He has assumed the retribution principle. We've talked about this. God blesses the deserving, curses the wicked, and therefore has embraced the belief that the world operates according to justice. These beliefs have been challenged by his experience. Job is now being challenged. This isn't working. My theology's not working, which cannot be explained as justice. That's why he's blaming God for being unjust. His quandary then is that God who runs the system may not be just. If justice reigned in the cosmos, that's the world, rain, the provider of blessing and fertility, would target the deserving. Now note, the rain is falling on the uninhabited lands. Yahweh demonstrates to Job that his logic does not account for reality. In effect, Yahweh asserts that justice is not the foundation of the world, nor does the cosmos operate by justice, despite the fact that he rules the cosmos and that he is just. What he's basically saying is simply this. God isn't just ruling the world through justice. God is also ruling the world through his wisdom. God is ruling the world through his goodness. God is ruling the world through his grace. God is ruling the world through his kindnesses and his compassion. How many are glad that God isn't just going, hey, every time I see something wrong, I'm going to nail it? You know, we'd be in trouble, folks. Right? How many can say, thank God for his long-suffering mercy toward us? Aren't you glad that God is not, you know, God is, is not ignoring the wicked? He's not ignoring sin, but he's, he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. God is showing us kindness in spite of our behavior. Aren't you glad that God rules the world beyond just with justice? Hallelujah. Isn't this amazing? No, you guys got all of this out of that, right, when you read it? No, I didn't get it out for a long time, so I'm not poking fun at you. It just takes a little study to figure these things out. I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll see that. Huh? What a beautiful thought. God governs the constellations. Look at verse 32 of chapter 38. Can you bring forth the constellations in their season? How many know the stars and the orbits? They're creating the movement of the sun and the earth. All of these things, right? And what happens is we get seasons as a result of that. And so so often he, let me read the next verse. Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? The answer is, of course not. We don't control the seasons. If we were in Alberta, we'd go, I'd like a little longer summer, please. A little shorter winter, please. Right? I mean, if we were running the things, wouldn't we kind of do that? Probably, pastor. You know, I'd be tempted. I have to confess, you know. But the movement of the constellations is something we don't fully completely understand, but from the beginning of time, according to Ray Stedman, human beings have believed that the stars have had a mysterious effect on the earth. And there's actually a pseudoscience, pseudo means false, right? It's not true science, it's false, called astrology, and it's based on the belief, a belief that the stars rule the destinies of human beings. Wow. To this day, millions of people believe in astrology and consult their horoscopes, which is an astrological projection or forecast, to see what the stars have planned for their lives for that day. Man, people are devoted to that stuff. You know? And I want to just tell you right now, you don't really want to know the future, number one. Right? You think you do. But if it was bad news, you'd go, how do I get rid of this thing? Number one. But let me point something out to you. Who controls the stars? Well, God does. 
Why even bother with the horoscopes? You might as well just go right into the Bible and go right to the source, the one who actually rules these things. The real destiny doesn't lie in the stars. It lies in God's purposes for our lives. Anyways, God warns us against trusting in the creation rather than the creator. Our lives aren't determined by stars, but rather by God's purposes in our lives. God provides for us and then, or sorry, provides and uniquely designs his animal kingdom. How many really enjoy shows like the animal kingdom? Isn't that kind of intriguing? All the instinctive behavior of all these animals. And so now we get into these chapters where it shows that God is actually watching over the animals. It says, and I'm not going to go through them all, but it's going to go highlight. Do you hunt the prey, verse 39 of chapter 38, for the lioness? Do you satisfy the hunger of the lions? Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawns? Do you know as human beings, we have a hard enough time caring for humanity? We're doing a pitiful job taking care of each other on this planet, by the way. Millions of people are dying of starvation. I mean, leave it up to us. We're going to ruin the thing anyways. But here God is concerned even about the details of a deer giving birth to a fawn. Isn't that amazing? God is really good at taking care of his planet. Now, unfortunately, he's kind of given us co-regency, co-rulership of the planet. We haven't always made the best choices as human beings. Isn't that true? We have created the problem down here. But we blame God for it all the time. I'm telling you, God's getting a bad rap. You know, we got to take a little more responsibility for the mess we're in. That's what I think. And I think this book brings that out. Who are we to question what God's doing? You know, Warren Worsby talks about the providence of God is certainly remarkable. In his wisdom and power, God supervises the whole universe and makes sure that his creatures are cared for. As a matter of fact, Psalm 145, 16, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Isn't that beautiful? God is the one taking care of things. So what, what is God's point? He knows what he's doing. We don't. That's the point. God's wisdom and grace are seen in the way our universe functions. God shouldn't be questioned just because we don't understand it. Nor do we understand what's happening in our lives. So we shouldn't be coming to God and goes, I don't understand what you're doing in my life. God is saying, you don't need to understand. You just need to trust me. Amen? See, that's powerful. See, when you get to that stage, you'll stop asking why. And then you'll ask a better question. Okay, what are we going to do about this, God? You know, instead of saying, why is this happening to me? Change the question to, God, what are we going to do about this? Whole new thinking. Because when we get fixated on why and we never get the answer, Job never got the answer, we're stuck in the why question. I'm trying to help you tonight move to the what question. What are we going to do about this, God? How are we going to go from this point? What am I supposed to learn in this? Far more productive. Let me move on to the second challenge. First is the right to contend with God. The second is to charge that God is unfair. Oh, by the way, do we ever do that? Do we ever blame God? Do we ever say, God, you know, you're unfair to me? You're unjust? Well, you know, this is what Job said. Job said, as surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, so he's saying, God, you're being unfair to me, the Almighty who has made my life bitter. Do you know sometimes we, I'll tell you how it works. Whenever we're not satisfied with the way things are, we're basically saying, God, I'm not pleased with the way you're doing things. I'm really complaining. I'm really saying, I don't like my lot in life. I think you messed up, God. I think you must have switched babies or something in the nursery. I thought I had a greater destiny than this, you know? You're saying, well, you're just being funny, Pastor. I'm going, no, I, I think sometimes we think this way, you know? 
I think sometimes we read our own press clippings. We think we're better than we are. And let me just say something to us. If we had a different lot in life, we wouldn't be any happier, I can guarantee you. And I'm gonna prove the point. You know, look at our culture today. Who does our culture, maybe not you, but who does our culture idolize? Movie stars, sports icons, right? Isn't that who we idolize? And why do we idolize them? Because they got everything we want. They're beautiful, they're famous, they're rich, they got a good life. Come on now, isn't that the truth? Yeah, but just look at their lives. Are they happy? Oh, no, they're not happy because they get all of these, you know, these rags that come out on the, you know, I call them, I shouldn't say that. These magazines that talk about the movie stars' lives, you know, and so many of them are living so messed up lives and they're so discontented and unhappy. Isn't that true? You know, and then we're happy with that. You know, those magazines sell because, you know, if we want to be like them, but when we're not like them, at least they're miserable too, you know? We kind of enjoy that. Some people are like that. They're masochistic and they're thinking, oh, at least, you know, they're not any happier than I am, you know? Aren't we funny? We don't rejoice in people's successes. We just kind of rejoice in people's misery. Well, God doesn't like that, by the way. Tells you not to behave like that. What's the real issue? Here's the real issue. Do you know in this life you'll never be satisfied? Stop going for that. Pastor, you just busted my bubble here tonight. Well, I'm going to say this to you. You were designed by God with eternity in your heart. You were designed by God to spend all of eternity with God. You were designed by God to only be satisfied with God. You were designed by God to really actually hate all the evil and the sin in this world and the injustice in the world. You were designed by God like that. And so as long as we're on this planet, you'll never be fully satisfied. There'll always be a longing, an ache inside of your soul for something more than what you have. But if you have Christ tonight, if you have him ruling in your life, if you are surrendering and submitting your life to him, you need to walk around going, God, I am so thankful you have blessed my life. You have given me exactly what I need. Maybe not all what I thought I wanted. A lot of times when we get what we want, we find out it's not all that what it's cracked up to be. You know what an idol is? It's a false substitute for God. And we pursue these things that we think will make us happy. You know, if I have a little more money. Well, if I just married the right person, I'd be a lot happier. I can go on. We have all kinds of idols. But they don't produce satisfaction, folks. They really don't. And a lot of people who make those decisions find out later, boy, that was a stupid thing to do. Let's go on here. Verse 40 says, And the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I'm going to question you. You're going to answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me in order to justify yourself? Now, throughout the book, Job's focus has been on his righteousness. Have you noticed that? He wants to say, I'm innocent. I'm right. I want people to admit, I'm right. I'm not wrong. And then he's not been interested in retaining his goods. In other words, he's not worried that he's lost everything or his status or even being relieved from his suffering. Nowhere in the book does Job say, you know, I want you to heal me. It's interesting. He wants to die, but he doesn't say, I want to be healed. You know, he just wants God to vindicate him. He wants to be seen as a righteous person. I suspect uh, that this is because, uh, sorry, he, uh, he, he, sorry, he wants to be declared righteous and receive acknowledgement that he did nothing to deserve the tragedies that he's experienced. Thus far in the book, he has attempted to establish his righteousness by defaming God's justice, or more precisely, the justice of God's policy for running the world. In other words, he's been saying, God, you're not fair to me. 
I'm right and you're wrong. He wants God to admit he's wrong. <laughs> Isn't that what he's been doing? Sure, the whole, through the whole book, if you're paying real close attention. And so God now challenges Job to deal with those who commit evil in the world. I think this is interesting. Oh, I guess I didn't put that one in. So he says, look, Job, if you can do this, I'll declare that you're righteous. All you need to do, verse 40, verse 11, chapter 40, verse 11, he says to Job, unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them down, bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. And then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand has saved you. In other words, you're a righteous person. You can save yourself if you can do this. In other words, if you can maintain this retribution concept of putting down all the wicked, then God will acknowledge that Job is righteous. Now John Walton says, and this is interesting, that in chapters 40, verse 11 to 13, Yahweh speaks only of Job punishing the wicked with his endowment of power and makes no mention of ensuring that the righteous do not suffer. In other words, he's not asking him to make sure that the innocent people don't suffer. He's just asking them to punish the wicked, okay? He's not asking them to do it all. I suspect, this is John Walton says, that this is because punishing the wicked would be much easier than ensuring that the righteous do not suffer. And the point made that Job cannot even do the former. In other words, Job doesn't have the power to punish the wicked, let alone attempt to protect the innocent from suffering. Now this is a critical point. Because I'm going to ask the question of us now. Because God's asking the question of Job. And we, we sometimes divorce ourselves from the story. But in a sense, we're like Job. And I'll put it to you this way. Are we able to do what's right at all times? Anybody here ever mess up? Any mess ups? Any slips? Okay. So... Are we able to be righteous on our own? Nope. The fact is, even someone as godly as Job has messed up. He's accused God of being unjust or unfair because of his suffering. It's interesting how our society do not see their need for God. You know why? Because they think they're okay. And you know, when you live in an affluent culture, it really comes out. Because as long as we have a good life, it's keeping us from God. You see, I believe the good life keeps us from the best life because the best life is the God life. And we, and we, we, we just think, we, hey, we're okay. We can handle our problems. We can deal with whatever comes our way. You know, we've, de- we've developed a proud attitude and we're in trouble because of it. We think that we can run our world without him, but what we end up doing is making poor choices, messing things up, Not only for ourselves, but other people are hurt as a result. We can't even do right by ourselves. How can we do right by others? How can we show justice in our world? How can we stop the evil that is happening around us? Because God isn't causing the evil. It's human beings that are causing the evil with their wrong choices and blaming God for all the evil. Isn't that ironic? Aren't we doing that? Of course we are. By asking Job to address evil, God shows that Job is incapable of dealing with it. Only God can bring good out of humanity's evil. That's amazing to me. And how did he do that? He sent his son, came down to earth, who knew no sin. And what happened? He took on himself all the sin of the world on himself. 
He took all the evil of humanity on himself on that cross. Isn't that amazing? He addressed our mess. He cleaned it up. Isn't that amazing? I think it's amazing. It's an incredible expression of God's love and concern for us. And then God uses two illustrations of God's ability and man's inability. We have two creation, the creation of Behemoth. It's a large land creature. Many have tried to figure out what exactly this animal is. Some have said, well, he's a hippopotamus. Some think he's an elephant. Some say he's a water buffalo. Some think he's a crocodile. Some believe he's a dinosaur. Others believe this is just a mythological creature. But here's what I want you to notice. Look at chapter 40, verse 15. It ranks first among the works of God, speaking of Behemoth. Yet its maker can approach it with his sword. Can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap and pierce its nose? Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. The point is not what it is. See, that's what we focus in on. The real point is simply this. He is such a feared creature that man can't address it. He can't tame it. It's out of his sphere of control. And God goes, no problem. I can handle it. I made it. I can handle it. I think what God is saying is simply this, that it's outside of our league. It's beyond our ability to address. And then he goes on and talks about the second creature, Leviathan, which is the largest water creature. Verse one, he says, can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Verse nine, any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Notice something's changing in this verse now. He moved from Leviathan to himself, God, because God's speaking. He's saying, look, who can, who can handle it, basically? And then he says this, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. It's God's world. That's why I entitled the sermon, It's God's World. Listen, what is he saying? He's saying what you're unable to handle I created. As a matter of fact, I've actually read some scholars. They actually believe Leviathan is actually, uh, a, you know, a concept of chaos. <laughs> and God is one that's creating order. And every time we make decisions, we're creating chaos. You know, I'm not saying that's necessarily the right interpretation. But what I am thinking that the scripture is teaching here is simply this: you and I can't control some of the stuff that God created. It's beyond us. That's the point that he's making in this. And so John Walton reminds us, the book of Job encourages us to avoid the easy reductionism that makes God accountable to how we think the world ought to operate. Our ideas of how things ought to work will always be naive and simplistic. And God just simply says, you gotta trust me. How many can honestly say, this is a lot bigger than I think. This is far more complex than I understand. There's a lot more going on here than I know. Isn't that true? And I want you to know God is far greater than what you and I can give him credit for. And he's able to handle all the nonsense that's going on around us. You know, we think the world is chaotic and out of control. Do you know it's actually moving towards God's predetermined purpose? I've read the book of Revelation. You know, man's doing all kinds of crazy choices and nonsense things, but it's actually moving us to our ultimate culmination in history. It's all under control. God is able to handle all the nonsense we're doing, you know? Think of it this way. My little granddaughter's downstairs playing with me, you know? 
I'm actually supervising her. I'm letting her do all kinds of things. She thinks she's making all these choices. And is she? Yes, she is. But I know at the end of the evening, I'm going to pick up everything and put it all away. It's all going to be taken care of. I'm even get her to help me to do some of it. But the point is, I know I'm going to pick it all up. I'm going to clean it all up. It's not going to be a big thing. It looks chaotic. It looks like it's a mess in that room. But I know that I have the capacity to clean it up. And God knows that even though he's given us that ability to make choices, he has the capacity to clean it all up. What an amazing God we serve. None of us are righteous. We need a Savior. There are so many things beyond our control. Our problem is that we so often look at the larger picture of evil and never see where the problem starts. You know, I love this story. I'm closing with it. uh, C.K. Chesterton, very famous. G.K. Chesterton, very famous correspondent. Many years ago, I think he lived in the early 1900s, correspondence of the London Times was writing articles dealing with the same problems that we're faced with today. You know, we haven't changed that much. We've got all the same issues, you know. If you read the papers 100 years ago, we've got the same stupid things happening in the world, right? War, famine, earthquakes, we've got rape, murder. Can I go on? we just got the same stuff repeating itself over and over and over again. And he kept ending every article with the same statement, what's wrong with this world? And one day, in a famous response, G.K. Chesterton said, Dear Editor, what's wrong with the world? Question? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What was he saying? He's saying, the evil you're looking at originates in each one of us. It originates in the human heart. You see, James says, What causes division and wars and fightings among you? Is it not the evil desires within you? It should not surprise us that nations are in collision courses and battling with each other when so often we see all kinds of battles going on in our own homes where there's conflict in relationships. Do you know there are some people that they're so miserable they can't even stand to live with themselves? It's the truth. We need to understand that. At the base of all of our problems is the sinfulness of man and the answer is one savior. It's God himself in the person of Christ. Let's stand tonight. I don't know about you, but this is, you know, and I think back to Job. I have to say, Job, I really appreciate you. Some people don't think, they just think it's a story, you know, to teach us these lessons. I think Job actually lived. And you know, I wanna just thank Job. Man, he didn't have a Bible. He didn't have the revelation we have today. He had to go through all this difficulty and suffering. And you know who the beneficiaries are? Us. We can look at his life and go, Job, we learned so much from you. Didn't we not? Aren't we learning from his life? Hey, if you don't learn from other people's mistakes, what's going to happen? You're going to make them. So I want to thank Job for going through this stuff so that I don't have to experience it at this level. But you know, in my life, I can look back And there have been times where I've blamed God for things. There's times that I've had this retribution theology in my own head where I said, you know, God, I've done all of these things for you and it's not turned out the way I thought it was going to be. I have been really disappointed by the outcome. I remember graduating from Bible college, you know, studied hard, worked hard, you know, ministered the whole time, you know, kind of sacrificially went through school, all, everything. And at the end of the day, I graduated, I sold my little business, I was ready to go into ministry, and because I was a newly married person and I realized I had a responsibility to care for my wife, I got this landscaping job, 
And I found myself sitting on a hillside in Seattle, Washington, digging up the grass between the cracks in the sidewalk on Queen Anne Hill. Some of you may know where that is. And every once in a while, the bus would come by, it's diesel fuel, and blow it in my face. And at that moment, I had a little pity party. You guys never have these things. But I was really discouraged. I'm 27 years old, right? And I'm sitting there, and I'm really kind of disheartened by this. And I have this little voice in my head goes, this is what you get for serving God. You know where that voice came from. That's a fiery dart of the enemy, right? You know, you're going through this experience. You do all these things. You go, God, is this what I get? But what was God really doing? You know, he didn't answer me. What was he really doing? He was trying to fashion some things in my soul. How many think it's important that a minister of the gospel have good character? How many think that might be important? I think that was, that was just as important to God as getting a degree in theology. It really was. He was working on my character. He was working on things like patience. He was working on things like learning to trust God. Amen? He's working on those things, but how about you? Don't you think that you and I represent God in our world? When you leave this room, you represent Jesus Christ. Don't you think God thinks it's important what your character is like? Absolutely. And so some of the things we've gone through, we go, hey, I didn't like what I went through. Yeah, but what's it fashioning and shaping in our lives? You know, sometimes crisis just reveals what's within us. Isn't that true? We see our hearts for what it really is in that moment. We need to say, oh, God, maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you don't know Christ. I want you to know nobody's righteous. Not one person on the planet can say they've never messed up. We need a Savior. God is our Savior. With every head bowed tonight, is there anyone here say, you know, I've never given my life to Christ, but tonight I'd like to do that. I'd like to experience God's goodness and his mercy and his forgiveness. Just raise your hand. I'll pray with you. Let me ask a different question tonight. Maybe you're here tonight. You've been disappointed by life. You've been frustrated. You've been angry. And I prayed today. I said, Lord, just bring anybody that's angry towards you. Bring the people that are questioning all this stuff that's going on in their life. Just bring them here tonight. Bring them here this morning. That they would hear this message and realize, who are we to contend with God? Who are we to say God's treated us unfairly? I would venture to say that God's probably treated us better than we deserve. I can honestly say that he's probably done that, right? And yet we get upset with him. It's not working out exactly the way I think. God, I'm kind of disappointed with the way this is working. Maybe we need to say, Lord, would you forgive me? I need to let go of this garbage. I need to let go of this stuff. You know, I thought life would turn out this way, but it's turned out this way. Who's not to say God has not guided your steps? You know, man plans, God determines. You know, I'm working with our staff. I've made plans. Sometimes it's worked. Other times it hasn't. I say to myself, I'm planning. God's determining. Isn't that true? And I have to say this. God always knows best. He's, he's, he's so much wiser than I am. Maybe that's you tonight. Discouraged a bit. Been a little upset. Maybe you've been angry at God. And you want to pray tonight. Say, Lord, would you just give me the right heart attitude? Is that you? Just raise your hand. Yeah, God bless you. A few of you. Yes, good. It's important, you know, we, we acknowledge before God our need. Hey, Lord, I've got this wrong. I want to get it right. I want to think right. I want to learn to trust you rather than having to know why. I want to start asking the question, what do I need to do with this? How do I need to move forward in this instead of why does this happen to me? It's amazing, isn't it? So, Lord, we thank you tonight.
What an amazing God you are. We're learning who you are through the book of Job. And it's a beautiful discovery. You're far more compassionate, far more understanding, far more gracious. And Lord, even with our disappointments, our difficulties, our trials, our sufferings, Lord, we know that you're the all-wise God. 